Welcome to After the JAG Corps, Navigating Your Career Progression, a podcast for judge advocates leaving military service. After the JAG Corps assists officers transitioning from the military law practice by learning from individuals who have successfully embarked on new careers, providing insight on rewarding professional opportunities, job search strategies, resumes, the value of your military experience, and more. Now, here is your host, Tom Welsh. Just a few notes before turning to my conversation with retired Navy Captain Steve Barty. First, I want to thank everyone who took the time to listen, commented, or shared my podcast. I really appreciate your support and encouragement in this endeavor. I also want to thank those of you who have volunteered to come on the podcast to talk about your career progression journey. As I stated in the trailer, although everyone's journey is different, I believe that we can each learn something from these individual accounts as we look towards retirement or separation from the services. We'll also have episodes dedicated to specific subjects. One former JAG offered to come on the podcast to talk about self-care and mental resiliency during the career progression progress. I immediately said yes. I would also love to have someone come aboard to talk about resumes, USA jobs, and the VA disability rating process. In short, I'm open to discussing any subject that would be helpful to transitioning judge advocates. If you have expertise in these or other areas, or know someone who does, please email me at afterthejagcorps@gmail.com at gmail.com so I can get you or them on my list. Now for this podcast. Back on July 1st, 2021, I caught up with Steve Barney, who retired from the Navy in 2012 and went on to work on the Senate Armed Services Committee before serving as a commissioner on the National Commission on Military, National, and Public Service. This commission concluded its work in 2020, producing a report entitled Inspired to Serve. I will provide a link to this report in the show's description online for those of you who are interested in reading it for yourself. Now, here's my interview with Steve Barney. Steve, welcome and thank you for agreeing to come on to the show to share your journey for those of us who are thinking about or facing retirement or separation from the JAG Corps, regardless of service. It's great to be with you, my friend. You know, when I think about the terrific folks that you and I had a chance to serve with, I can't think of anything better than this mission you've taken on to help people start thinking about what, what the opportunities are for them after the detailer is, is no longer finding jobs for you. What I'm trying to do is build awareness of all the opportunities that are out there. Can you kind of give us a background of what you did when you were in the Navy? Yeah, glad to. In the late 1980s, the Massachusetts economy was on the skids. I needed a job to provide for my family, so I went into the Navy for the minimum commitment just to get a job so I could return to my local community and and do something else. And then 22 years later, I said, wow, this has been one heck of a ride. I had a chance to serve in some of the greatest places that the Navy has, starting out in beautiful Lemoore, California. I think it was one of the places that really taught my wife, Tammy, and me to really appreciate the, the Navy community we're with and the folks you do get to serve with. From there to beautiful Point Magoo, California, heck of a lot prettier place. Spent about four years in Puerto Rico back when the Navy had a presence at uh, Rosie Roads, Puerto Rico, up to the Naval Justice School on the staff, a beautiful Newport, Rhode Island. And as we're speaking, I know that the Naval Justice School is about a week away from celebrating its 75th anniversary as an amazing institution in our Navy JAG Corps. From there, I went and spent some time at the Naval War College doing all the reading because I loved it. Uh, then I went to Cruiser Destroyer Group 8 down in Norfolk, Virginia, embarked in the Theodore Roosevelt. From there, went straight over to Yokosuka, Japan, 
the one place in the world my wife did not want to go to. She cried all the way there. And four years later, she cried all the way home. We started off then at what was called the Trial Service Office Detachment in Yokosuka. And then uh, after two years there, I went over and served as the 7th Fleet JAG aboard the, the Mighty Blue Ridge. From there, first tour in Washington, D.C., where I went to work in Navy Legislative Affairs. From there, uh, the JAG front office is the EA. Zoomed down to uh, Fleet Forces Command in Norfolk. A gig there is the, the Fleet JAG. Back up to Washington, D.C. in the Navy Yard, where I finished my tour, serving as the Navy Legal Service Command Inspector General. You know, what a great way to finish a career, just to go around the Navy and around the world and see so many people I had served with throughout my career. I want to go to the decision to retire. You had 22 years. You obviously could have stayed for another eight. What went into your decision-making process of, hey, now's the time to, to pull the cord? Honestly, Tom, I, I think it just felt right. Folks that are listening and heard some of the things I had the opportunity to do in my Navy career, honestly, I had succeeded far beyond anything I had ever imagined. And I felt like the time was right. With that, we we're also in the Washington, D.C. area where there are other opportunities for somebody like me that was transitioning. And it, it just felt like it felt like the right time. Did you put in your papers without having anything to land or did you have something lined up when you put those papers in? Yeah, the only thing I had uh, lined up was my retirement ceremony on December 7th of 2011. I bought the Constitution in, in Boston Harbor, and only a fool like me would schedule an outdoor <laughs> retirement ceremony on board a ship in December in Massachusetts, and it was a great day. The weather was terrific. We didn't lose anybody. During that period of time, I, I had been, you know, towards the end of my career, starting to flirt with USA jobs and starting to, started to try to get some uh, things on that. And you know, no surprise, even even for folks like us who serve careers in the Navy, it's very difficult to find uh, an opportunity on on and through USA jobs. So I, I literally walked off the Constitution that day and I was pretty much done until I got a, a phone call about a week later from a friend of mine whom I had known very well when I'd worked in Navy Legislative Affairs saying, hey, would you be interested in coming to Capitol Hill and serving in the Senate Armed Services Committee? I just had enormous respect for the folks that that worked over there. By the way, we have a really amazing tradition of terrific uh, retired Navy JAGs. And I'm, I'm not putting myself in that. I mean, really terrific, terrific folks like Captain uh, Rick DeBobis, who for many years was the staff director of the Senate Armed Services Committee, and uh, retired Captain Dick Walsh, who served as minority counsel and professional staff member for many years there on the all-important military personnel policy thing. So knowing those folks and the kind of work that was available to do over there it was a great opportunity, and uh, I was basically still on active duty in the Navy when I started in early January of uh, 2012 with the Senate Armed Services Committee, and I stayed there for about five years. It was the network that got you in, into the Senate Armed Services Committee. You know, uh, you're right, uh, Tom. It's, it's the network that uh, so many times is what really makes the difference. USA Jobs is an interesting platform with some challenges to it, but there's nothing like the people that you've known, that you've worked with, that you've served with. Frankly, people that you care about and who care about you that will provide opportunities for you, maybe they can't offer you a job, but many times they can give you ideas and they can be sounding boards for people that for, you know, things that you might be thinking of doing, maybe they can help you with an introduction. I think our JAG community has been extraordinarily supportive of people who've served, both the active duty component as well as those great Navy JAG reservists that I served with through my entire career. Had you been conducting informational interviews with people or was this something they just saw on social media and just said, hey, you, you'd be that guy? 
Well, first thing I would say is don't be this guy, okay? Because <laughs> my career has been a continuous series of accidents, in my view. But I don't really mean accidents because, I, again, I, I think about terrific people who mentored me and uh, helped me find great opportunities and, and frankly, uh, trusted me to, to stretch me and to allow me to do some things that, uh, that I probably was not entirely qualified to do. But I went in and gave it my best shot. No, I had not been doing interviews. I had not been uh, really giving an awful lot of thought to this in the transition, like many of us. And, uh, you know, it's a trap. I, that's why I say, don't be this guy. Don't be this, you know, don't get yourself into the trap of suddenly finding yourself walking between the bullets at your retirement ceremony with your, with your spouse and uh, getting piped ashore to no plan. As I approach that date and whatever it may be, you know, the one of the things I look at my Navy career and I say law of the sea and rules of engagement and personnel law, and all these things that we do that are important in the Navy and this schizophrenic career path. So you kind of become jack of all trades, a master of none, if you will. But yeah. I got to believe that came in very handy going to the Senate Armed Services Committee. Well, yeah, absolutely. Because it's a, it's the kind of place to get it done. Take a lot of the skills that you learn as a lieutenant in the JAG Corps. And you have to make everything work every day. When you are a trial counsel, when you're serving as a defense counsel, nobody's going to do the case preparation for you. You've got to do that work yourself. And transitioning to the Senate Armed Services Committee, it would be really great if you had a group of folks there to provide you the support. I was my support team over there. I made copies, uh, three copies of everything that I thought that a senator might want to see during a Senate hearing. And I stayed as long as it took every day. Frankly, the other thing about a Navy JAG Corps career is you know the value of putting in the time when you need to do it. And that really served me very well. You mentioned that there's a history of, you mentioned Navy JAGs having worked on Capitol Hill. Are there quite a few JAGs from all the services on there that have moved on there? Or, you know, if somebody's listening this and say, yeah, that sounds like what I want to do. How do you go about pursuing that opportunity? It's a number of JAGs over there. I wouldn't say that there's a lot of them, but JAGs from all the services are uh, over there. When I think about the current composition of folks over on the Senate Armed Service Committee, the person who kind of filled in my shoes afterwards um, had served in the Army as a judge advocate on the majority side right now. Great friend and, and colleague Gary Leeling is a retired Army JAG colonel. And Jenny Davis, who was another terrific, absolutely terrific Army JAG, is over there and serving right now. Look, I, I think the thing is that for folks who have an opportunity to do work while they are in the service that has to do with legislation, where you build those relationships and you build some credibility as someone who is, is uh, going to be frank, candid, uh, providing facts, being supportive uh, to the legislative process for the service, those kind of relationships go a long way. There aren't a lot of jobs. If you're thinking about those, I would recommend um, building, building the networks early over there. And then keeping in mind that um, jobs don't typically open up there except every two years on the legislative, on the election cycle when there's opportunities that, that come about. But many of the folks that serve over there have served there for, for many, many years. But if it's something that people have a heart to do, it's a tremendous opportunity and I would encourage it. That leads me to my next question. You only did five years. Was it the other opportunity that came up or did you, you know, five years is the, the, the long shelf life for Steve one job? No, actually, uh, it was primarily for personal uh, reasons. I left Massachusetts uh, with my wife, and we took off for about 30 years, and my mom and dad were aging. 
I have uh, two wonderful sisters. One of them is an individual with intellectual disabilities. And the time was right for me for a lot of family reasons to come back to this area to basically to let my mom and dad know that, you know, they've done a wonderful job and, and that I was ready, along with my other sister, to begin the work of, of providing care and support with my youngest sister. Five years was a great time for me to go. And so now I find myself in, in Cape Cod. Right now, I am mostly retired, but I work on the boards of two nonprofits, provide support to adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities and to their families to help them have better lives. I also am part of a, a town commission. I'm a non-elected commissioner who helps ensure that the board, when it does its planning for major projects and things, is considering the needs of accessibility to ensure that all citizens even individuals of different abilities have the, have the ability to use the facilities that are paid for by the taxpayers. After the stint on Capitol Hill, you served as a commissioner on the National Commission on Military, National, and Public Service for three years. You want to talk about that a little bit? What a great privilege it was. My last boss on the SASC when I served as general counsel was the late Senator John McCain. Working with him in the 2016 National Defense Authorization Act, he and current chairman uh, Jack Reed of Rhode Island directed me and my counterpart on the, on the Jack Reed staff to come up with a national commission that would take the first holistic view of service, military, national, and public service, as well as to look at this thorny issue of does the nation need a selective service system, and if we do, any changes should be made to it. And that one tantalizing thing that Congress couldn't decide for itself and it created a commission to do is should women be required to register for the draft. So I was honored to be pointed to that by uh, Senator McCain, and I served for three years. We published our report in uh, March of 2020, just as the nation was, was beginning to get in the throes of this COVID-19 business. And we came out with a report, I made 164 recommendations to help our nation by encouraging service, by trying to create a culture where everyone in our nation has an opportunity to serve in a way that is meaningful to them, meaning to, meaningful to our nation. A couple things here, and it's going to bring back to my focus here on JAGs looking for work after they get done. It says in here that you guys spent two and a half years, you visited 22 states, talked to a lot of different people from a lot of various backgrounds, 14 public hearings, and you talked that nearly 24 million individuals participate in some form of military, national, or public service to meet critical national needs. Some of the things I was stunned about is even in this day of the internet and the ability to gain knowledge was the finding that most Americans lack knowledge and awareness of military, national, and public service opportunities. And you always hear about less than 1% serve in the military and the military-public divide. And so what is your perception on military coming out and JAGs coming out? You hear that we don't talk the same language. We're not the same culture. How do we overcome that? I think that um, I think you approach it with um, a degree of humility understanding that while some percentage of the population would be interested in your sea stories, most people aren't. What they really value, though, is they value the way that we have learned to think through our careers and the way that we have learned to help an organization, whether it's a client organization or otherwise, to assess its risks, its benefits, to, and to work through a very deliberate process to make good decisions and do things to meet the mission. I really believe that every day that we served in the Navy, 
we were laser-like focused on preserving and advancing the mission of the Navy to be able to fight and defend our nation on the seas, in the air, under the seas, and in space. And I felt like I was a part of that. And, and everything that I did, even helping some uh, junior enlisted to solve a contract dispute that involved a rental property or something, anything that we could do to get that individual's head fully in the mission, fully in the game, enhanced our warfighting capability. I know that many of the folks viewing this understand that because that's what they do every day. And my point is, that's a value that you can bring to any organization. I'm also very active in my church up here, and I find that churches, like other types of nonprofits, um, have unique issues, and they value people like us who come in with a perspective of service, who are willing to roll up our sleeves and, and do the work, to ask hard questions and to do it in, and do it in a way that advances, advances other important interests. So I, I just encourage people that you could certainly use your GI Bill benefit to, to study new things and to gain new skills, but you carry an enormous amount of skills in your tool bag as you transition from, from the from the active duty component. And it's really going to be very helpful for you. Another recommendation that I picked up in here and I, I highlighted was enabling greater movement between all components of military service and between military service and the private sector. One thing that blew me away when I found out about it, I and mean, this must have been something that you were on the Capitol Hill when it became legislation, was the Skill Bridge Program. Yeah, those are the kind of transition things that provide real opportunities for people to engage and to, to learn about how they can help and to kind of discover the kind of things that turn them on and maybe the kind of things that, yeah, not so really so crazy about. I would say for every hour you spend doing one of those skills bridge type activities, it's worth probably 100 hours sitting at your computer mashing out the world's longest uh, resume on USA Jobs. So resume, functional, chronological, what do you prefer? Just tell your story. Give them enough just to open the door. I, I think one of the challenges that we sometimes have is being able to translate our military skills into things that are re relevant in the civilian world. I remember a guy who lived next to me at Point Magoo was a transitioning naval aviator. He went for a job to to get hired by a private company uh, as he was planning his transition. And he was told like at the end of the interview, well, look, you know, yeah, you've done really great things for your country and everything. But we're really looking for someone who has some management ability and some experience working and leading people. And it's like, do you have any idea what a division officer does in an aviation squadron? The thing is, we can't be shy about it. It's important to go in there with, like I said, a dose of humility, asking the kind of questions of a prospective employer or in an informational interview to really help to not just learn, learn for yourself, but help other people to learn what people who are transitioning from military service bring to the, to the private sector or to the public sector. Any parting shots, closing arguments you would like to make? I hope that folks that are listening to this are, are folks who are, you know, O3s, because as an O3, you really need to be thinking about your transition. Again, don't be this guy. I, I kind of woke up after 22 years and said, boy, this has really been a great ride. What's the next thing for me? You know, the beauty of being in the military is people are willing to talk to you about your future and your plans in a way that people don't even have in the, in the private sector. You, if you're in a private company and you want to talk about, you know, other jobs and other careers and things, that's, that's not the kind of discussion that many people welcome unless it's a trusted mentor. But in the military, you can have those discussions. And we have a tremendous alumni, I'm going to say that term, alumni of people who serve in the Navy, serve as JAGs who are doing amazing things now. And I would just simply say, look, take every advantage to learn from them about, about what it is they do, what kind of what they find fulfilling about it. 
ask them to share their mistakes and their successes and learn and, and start to plan your course so that you're not having an accidental career like this guy where, where things, uh, I've been blessed, but um, I, again, I just really came into some tremendous opportunities because people trusted me and, and, and were willing to take a risk on me. So take a risk with other people too. For those of you, if you do go look up Steve's profile on LinkedIn, his header is, I am passionate about service and a proud advocate for all who serve. And Steve, I have to tell you, it comes through. It comes through this interview. It comes through your passion, your excitement, and, and everything that you've done and what you've done for us both in uniform and out. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe and tell your friends. After the Jag Corps is a TJW 50 Associates LLC production.